Taking our Bibles then this evening and turning to Deuteronomy and the chapter 29. Deuteronomy and the chapter 29. Reading together from the verse 1 of the chapter. The Word of God says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh, and unto all his servants, and unto all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. You have not eaten bread, neither have you drunk wine nor strong drink, that ye might know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came unto this place, Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us unto battle, and we smote them. And we took their land and gave it for an inheritance unto the Reubenites and unto the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them, that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the here of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water." that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God as he saith unto thee and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. For ye know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord hath laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, neither beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Sebom, which the Lord overthrew in his anger 
and in his wrath. Even all the nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done this unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. And the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of the heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. And he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul." that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. And thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all of thy soul. Ending our reading there at the verse 10. And indeed, may the Lord bless it to our hearts. Now, as we come to this study this evening, we're coming to truly consider the fourth of the Bible covenants. Setting the stall for the last two Tuesday evenings, we've considered even that which was contained in the narrative and the great parable of Ezekiel in the chapter 16. But that was all setting the scene, as it were, for what we come to consider the night. For as we come to consider this message, this fourth of the Bible covenants, we come to what is the final book of those books that we refer to as the Pentateuch. Here in the book of Deuteronomy, it ends what you and I refer to as the very beginnings of our Bible. Now, to the Jew, Old Testament scriptures are divided into three clear sections. These are the law, or the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And so, when referring to that section of the Bible identified as the law, or as you might, I might commonly refer to it, the Pentateuch, we are speaking then of the books of Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and here, Deuteronomy. Now, these books are crucial to the Bible student, for within their chapters we find key fundamental and foundational truth concerning God, concerning creation, concerning family, concerning marriage, concerning civilization, grace, judgment, the patriarchs, the nation of Israel, the law, and indeed many other key themes which find their seeds in these early books. And all that we read of really in these five books also provide the backdrop for everything else which follows as the Scriptures progress. Now, chronologically, many scholars believe that the book of Job was written before at least some, if not all, of the books of the Pentateuch. But regardless of the accuracy or otherwise of that claim, we know with authority that these books of the law are part of the very earliest recorded revelation of God to man. And as such then, they mark the beginning of what we refer to as a progressive revelation. This is simply a descriptive term referring to how, as we make our way through Scripture, we see various aspects of God's will and God's redemptive plan revealed. Now, as you you and I come to the Bible, we know certain things to be true. They're true because we have a record of them being fulfilled in, indeed, our records of history. We know that there's parts of that which is prophesied, given in the Old Testament then, that has been already fulfilled, and there is testimony and testament to that. But as we come to consider what we mean by progressive revelation, then we note that as God reveals more and more through the words of Scripture, He is, if you will, drawing back the curtain ever increasingly more as the generations pass. Now, evidences of that, the idea of progressive revelation, are seen, of course, in our beliefs and practices also. We didn't arrive tonight, nor indeed Sunday past, with lambs and rams to be sacrificed. That would get the deacons going and give them a bit of extra jobs and responsibilities to do if everyone turned up with a sheep or a lamb or a ram to be taken care of. But nevertheless, we don't do that anymore. We also don't set aside the last day of the week for the praise and for the worship of God any longer. It's the first day of the week that we set aside to come together. We also don't recognize the set-apart hereditary priesthood any longer. And so all of these things and others beside have been made redundant as God's will and God's plan progressed, and as our knowledge then of God's will and God's plan increased as the generations passed. But nevertheless, much of the foundational truth upon which all of that is pinned upon is found in these five books. It's within these books we see evidence of God's peculiar and specific covenants with Israel also. This is what we identified, was it not, as we looked last time at the Abrahamic covenant, that unconditional promise that was given to Abraham of a people, a people through whom the nations of the world would be blessed. And as part of that covenant, we also noted that God covenanted that the people would possess a literal land as He had said. We also noted in the Mosaic covenant 
how God gave to His people, the people of Israel, increased knowledge as to His requirements for life, for civic life, for religious life, indeed personal life, reminded us of the truth that our God is a God of order. And in seeking for the Israelites to be the blessing He desired them to be in the world, God then established a covenant with them that we refer to as the Mosaic Covenant, that covenant made with Moses upon Sinai, which was conditional upon their obedience. In the books of the law, we find 613 commandments given. 365 of these commandments were negative, that is, things forbidden by God. 248 then were positive, things required by God. But nevertheless, God required that the people would obey the commandments that He had given. And obedience in turn then would mean that they would see His blessing outpoured upon them. Special blessing, special provision, special protection. That would be their reality. That would be their experience as they lived their lives according to His Word. Now, what about the land then that was promised as part of God's dealings with Abraham? For, yes, we've seen that people group established the nation of Israel. And so, the first part of God's covenant to Abraham, we can already see how that that is being fulfilled as they make their way out of Egypt and now stand upon the brink of the promised land, a great and a mighty company. But what about that specific land promise as part of that covenant made with Abraham? Well, that's what we come to consider this evening. For here in Deuteronomy, and specifically in the chapters 29 and 30, God addresses this matter and solidifies His promise to His people. And He does so remember being a covenant then within the bounds of a legal framework. Now, some might say, how is this a standalone covenant? It's found in the books of the law, and indeed is found in a book which many refer to as being the second law, or the repeating of the law. So, surely all of that which we come to consider tonight is just part of the Mosaic covenant that we've already considered. Now, there'll be others who do not see the reality of this covenant as we come to it. And remember, that's because of a difference in theological framework. We noted that at the beginning of our studies last year, that as our theological framework may differ, so too may our understanding of these Scriptures. But nevertheless, you'll know that, as already noted, I'm preaching it the way I see it. And so, this is very clearly to me within my theological framework that this is a standalone covenant in which God promises to do all that He has already spoken of to Abraham back at the beginning of time. So, it is true that this covenant finds its place in the book of the second law, but it's also true that it is not the same as all that has gone before. This is a separate covenant. This is a different covenant. And all of this is surely highlighted to us in the verse 1 of chapter 29, where he says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he had made with them in Horeb. 
Notice a definite article, the covenant. Notice the mark which distinguishes beside. Now, if you come to other translations of Scripture, they too set this distinction very clearly in this verse, for there's phrases used such as in addition to, besides, apart from, which was in addition to. And so uniformly in scriptural interpretations, we come to this understanding that that which we read off here in chapter 9 is distinct from all that has been referred to in the opening 28 chapters. The Hebrew word that's given to us here is the word bad, which communicates the idea of being alone by itself or apart from. So clearly, what is being communicated here is distinct from all that has been considered up until this point. And therefore, there's no doubt in my mind that we consider tonight a covenant which stands apart from the Mosaic covenant, but which also then exposes more light and gives more understanding to that which forms part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, notice also in verse 1 of chapter 29 that God clearly identifies through the writings of His servant the parties of the covenant. God is surely the one making the covenant, tells us which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel. So God is speaking to Moses. Moses then is being his human mouthpiece. And by, uh, by uh, the, all that is given to us, we have this understanding. This covenant is made by God. And the people of Israel are those with whom he is making the covenant. And surely that also confirms to us the significance of that which we come to consider tonight. For being called a covenant and understanding our definition of a covenant, that of being a legal framework, then all that is being discussed here, the land that is being transacted here, it is being made with those of whom the Lord spake when He covenanted with Abraham that His seed would possess and inherit a land. The two are one and the same. And so coming to this covenant then tonight within the bounds of this legal framework, God details that which will lead to the fulfillment of all that He spake unto Abraham. Now, as we come to consider this this evening, we will do so under the same headings that we have applied in times gone past. And so let us firstly consider the substance of this covenant, the substance of this covenant. In Deuteronomy, remember, the children of Israel are standing on the brink of the promised land. They're standing on the brink of inheriting all that God spake unto them through Moses in Egypt. As their forefathers knew what it was to hear the words of Moses that God had raised him up to be that deliverer and that he would lead them forth from that land and lead them into a land that he would give them, then now the offspring of that generation who heard the original message stand on the cusp of seeing the very fulfillment of all that God had promised to do. And surely in their hearts, Israel are pondering whether or not this was a moment that all that God had spake of, not only through Moses and to Moses, but also way back to Abraham, was this the moment that that was all about to be fulfilled? 
Let's refresh your minds of all that he spake of to Abraham when he said in Genesis in the chapter 17 in the verse 8, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Back up to chapter 15, if you're following along, and in verse 18 he says, In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephims, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. This is what God had spake unto Abraham. This is the covenant that was already entered into. And then as we come to Deuteronomy in chapter 29, God is shining extra light, if you will, upon all that he's already spoken of to Abraham, and he is binding all of that, but in regards to the specific part, the land, he's binding it all within a legal framework. And he's making that a standalone covenant that he surely will fulfill. And so if this is all true, if he is going to do that which he has promised to do, then, of course, it must see the fulfillment of that which he spake to Abraham. Now, we know as we look back that the children of Israel did not know the true fulfillment of all that was promised. This was not the moment. Standing on the brink of the promised land, it was not the moment that God's word to Abraham was going to be fulfilled. Indeed, it's something that is testified of right through the chapter 29 that we read together. He makes the people of Israel fully aware that this was not the moment of that fulfillment they longed for. But what he was then communicating to them was further evidence, further proof that he would indeed fulfill all that he had promised to do. Now, what we read off in chapter 29 from verse 2 and following is the testimony, the same exact testimony that we have considered already for two weeks in Ezekiel in the chapter 16. The entire book of Deuteronomy up until this point has been taken up with reminding Israel of their obligations under the Mosaic law. But in this 29th chapter, we see evidence of how the curse and the judgment of God was prophesied as being that which they would experience because of their sin. Sin of idolatry, sin of adultery, sin of backsliding, removing God from His rightful place in their hearts and in their nation. And remember, all of that we saw so clearly fulfilled in Ezekiel in chapter 16. And so Moses is speaking forward and saying, this, sadly, Israel, this will one day be your reality. And having spent two weeks in Ezekiel 16, we turn back and say, oh, Israel, it really was your reality. That's important to grasp at this point as we begin this study of this covenant. It's important to grasp because despite this prophecy of sin and backsliding, God still went ahead with the making of a covenant. And despite all we read off in Ezekiel 16 and the horrible, sordid tale of how they transgressed in the sight of God, 
God was still going to be true to the covenant he made. This covenant that we come to consider tonight. I ask you, can any clearer evidence be seen of the unfailing grace and mercy of God? Can we find any greater account of how the undeserving, yet those who are precious in his sight, receive that which he so plenteously bestowed? It was a leading question. For you might shake your head with, no, we cannot find a greater tale. But I tell you, we can. For although the tale that we have read off in Ezekiel in chapter 16, and that which we have come to read together tonight, it's a sordid tale. It's a tale in which the sin of Israel was truly grand and vast. And although all that was prophesied of by Moses here certainly came true, and although Israel knew as truth the vast supply then of God's grace, yet I tell you tonight there is an account that eclipses even that. There's an account that eclipses all that is prophesied of and all that God covenants to do with the people of Israel. And there is a recipient who received grace in an even greater measure than we read off here. And I want to tell you that story. Because that story begins where Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now in Christ Jesus ye who were sometimes were afar off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making a peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That, my friend, is an even greater story of grace 
than what we read of in Ezekiel in chapter 16. And that, my friend, is my story. And I stand before you tonight as a chief of sinners. And my story is a sordid one. And my story is a story marked by sin. My story is one of backsliding. But tonight, I marvel at the vast, unfathomable, immeasurable bounty of grace that He has bestowed upon me. My sins were many. But praise God, His mercy was more. And I look back and say that just as we noted last week was so often the phrase that I heard as a child, I deserved in the sight of God what for? But God gave His Son what for? On my behalf. It was my sin that nailed Him to the tree. It was my sin that necessitated that Christ might, must die. It was my sin for which He was banished from the very presence of His Father. And yet tonight I'm redeemed. I'm free from the law, oh happy condition. Tonight I'm adopted and made to be an heir and joint heir with the Son. Tonight I am welcomed. Tonight I am forgiven. Tonight I am loved. Tonight I am uh, who I am through the grace of God. And tonight I know because of my story that God is a covenant-keeping God. And I am precious in His sight. And so are you. Now as we come to chapter 30, we see really then the substance of the covenant outlaid. In verse 2 we see that after years of backsliding, years when God's judgment was experienced, Years when they would be scattered all across the globe, Israel would repent. It says, I shall return unto the Lord thy God, shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. Here we see testimony to Israel calling to remembrance all that God had promised. And in doing so, their hearts would turn afresh to their God. Where once disobedience had prevailed, now obedience would characterize the heart and the behavior of the nation. Look in verse 3. It tells us there that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. So firstly, we see there's going to be a return to the Lord. Secondly, we see in verse 3 that the, this will be followed by the second coming of Christ. Messiah would truly arrive, riding forth to make war, coming for the salvation of His chosen people. They in that moment would see Him, look upon Him whom they had pierced. Look at the end of verse 3 where it tells us they'll return and gather thee from all the nations. Verse 4, it says, If any of thine be driven out onto the outmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And so this coming of the Lord would be followed by the final and indeed the complete regathering of the nation. From even the most obscurest places upon this earth, God would regather his own. From the deserts of the Sahara, to the wilderness of Siberia, 
from the caves and hills of Slovenia to the nooks and crannies of El Salvador, from Lisbon to Lurgan, even from Anakmore to Akadue, God will regather his own. Some of you are saying, where's Akadue? <laughs> In verse 5, it tells us also that this all will lead to the possession of the land that was promised by God. The Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. He will do thee good, multiply thee above thy fathers. God's going to bless them in the land. God's going to prosper them in the land like never before. Now, surely reading these verses, we're also reminded that the existence of the Israelite nation since 1948, and that nation being recognized and defended as such in various world forums, and that nation gaining status and notoriety as a world power due to its agricultural might, its technological might, its medical knowledge, its military might, even having Jerusalem recognized as its center by the U.S., and even possibly in days to come, the U.K., do not in any way meet the requirements of being what is being spoken of here. All is to be welcomed. All is to be celebrated. But nevertheless, it is not a fulfillment of what we read of here in the chapter 30. Jewish people have not been regathered from all locations. They are still to be found all across the globe. And those who have returned have not returned to the Lord. Israel still also battles to possess the land. Its borders are under constant threat, and its place in this world that we live in is continually shrinking. And so what is spoken of here in verses 3 to 5 is surely future in nature and future in fulfillment even as we come to them tonight in 2022. Go on to verse 6, and it tells us there, The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. Testimony to the regeneration of the nation. They'll be quickened by the Spirit. They will truly be a people who seek after God, who serve God in spirit and truth who worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 7, the Bible tells us the nations of this world will be crushed. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee. The enemies of Israel will be judged and full restitution will be meted out. And then what follows in verses 8 through 20 are what are referred to as the blessings of the millennial kingdom. And these will be enjoyed as Israel possesses the land. Verse 9, God promises that they will be prosperous. Note there, he will make thee plenteous in every work. In verse 14, they'll have a more complete knowledge of the Word of God. It tells us there, but the Word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and thy heart, that thou mayest do it. In verses 19 and 20, we also see that they'll realize and enjoy a future. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days, 
that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Many promises. Much that God covenants to do. Now, understand then that in this, God is encasing the title deed, as it were, to the land yet to be possessed. The obligation to fulfill this covenant, to deliver this land to the Jews, rests entirely upon God, not upon an American administration, not upon a British government. Rests solely and entirely upon God. It's an unconditional, everlasting right to the land, and it belongs to Israel. That's the substance of the covenant. Let's notice, secondly, then, the stipulations in the covenant. There are none. Once again, we come to that which is unconditional in nature. This title deed belongs to Israel. Nothing ever changes it. It is true also to say that uniquely in this covenant, there is, however, an appendix at it. Whilst Israel's right to the land is unconditional, I believe these scriptures testify that their enjoyment and possession of the land is very much conditional. Conditional upon their choice to do what God has bidden them to do, to walk in His ways, according to verse 16, to keep His commandments, or if they go another way, that just as we saw happen in Ezekiel 16, how they were driven out of the land and find themselves in captivity, then no longer will they possess it. They'll own no title deed to it, but they would no longer possess it. They'll no longer enjoy it because of their backsliding, their hard heart, their unbelief. And so, surely as we look back at history, we recall and we see clearly that Israel's never fully realized the, the, the land, and never consistently experienced the joy and the blessing that God promised in the land. But remember, the will of God ultimately prevails. Yes, even after many false dawns and new starts, Israel one day will be regathered, regenerated, and replanted, all in order that the fullness of this covenant might be realized. Come thirdly then to consider the solace from the covenant. You might say to yourself, well, I've sat here for half an hour and I don't really know how this impacts or needs to impact upon my life. Well, that's why we consider this point in all of the covenants because, yes, this is a covenant specific to Israel. This is a covenant that indeed testifies to blessings that they alone will enjoy. We are Gentile believers, and our inheritance is the kingdom to come. And we find no place in this covenant, but there is, I believe, a significance that you and I can gain from it. Back up to verse 1 of chapter 30 and read with me again there, and it says, It shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whether the Lord thy God hath driven thee shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all I command thee this day, thou and thy children with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. 
If any of thine be driven out unto the outmost parts of heaven, and from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. The Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee which persecuted thee. Thou shalt return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command thee this day. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand and the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. Notice what is repeated over and over and over again, right through the words that make up what I believe to be the legal framework of this covenant. And it is, of course, the phrase, the Lord thy God. It's all one huge reminder that God is at work. It's a huge reminder that God has always been at work and will always be at work. All things are under His control. In these nine verses, we read that rebuke comes at His command. We read that restoration comes because of His work. Regeneration comes because of His work. Retribution comes because of His work. Revitalization all come because of His work. You might be sitting here tonight and looking at the world around us, looking at the world in which we live, a world in which the economic foundations are shaken, a world in which the constitutional foundations are shaken, a world in which decency, order, morality, respect are all missing, a world in which no refuge is found. Nation rises up against nation, wars and rumors of wars are all around. We're in a world in which nothing is permanent nor indeed secure. All is change. All is in flux. We're in a world in which it's hard to identify who we are or where our place is. But surely as we read these nine verses and see that repeated phrase and a continual reminder that God is at work in all things, then it's a comfort to know that in such a world, God is at work. His plan is unfolding. And even the most treacherous of world powers, even the most sustained and brutal of Satan's attacks, and even the most shocking of happenings, never derails his plan, never disrupts his work, never deters his will. Even when it seems impossible, he makes it possible. Even when it seems ridiculous, he makes it plausible. Even when it seems like the moment has gone and gone forever, he makes it punctual. Tonight you may be here concerned. Concerned as to what is going on all around. Concerned as to where we are headed. Concerned as to what the future holds. Perhaps even just what this winter holds. But tonight, behold in this covenant an everlasting, never-changing fact. It's all going according to plan. And yes, life may be hard. The day-to-day -day struggle to even just survive may be real. 
The future may be bleak according to the forecast of this world, but the prospect tonight remains grand for the believer. And tonight, behold, in this covenant, just as we beheld in the story which accompanies this covenant in Ezekiel in the chapter 16, that this is all record of the never-failing grace of God. Grace to save, no doubt. Grace to live, no doubt. Grace to survive, no doubt. Grace to pick yourself up and carry on, no doubt. Grace to forgive our shortcomings and our sins against Him, no doubt. Grace to overcome, no doubt. Grace to believe, no doubt. And yes, even grace to die. There's no doubt about that. And 1 Peter in the chapter 5 and the verse 10, the apostle there reveals Him to be the God of all grace. He goes on to say that He is the one who hath called us on to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. What Peter is reminding us of there is we are part of His plan. Peter goes on to reveal also in that verse that His plan does contain suffering. For he says, after ye have suffered a while. Christ himself said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in in me ye might have peace. In this world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so, yes, all that's unfolding in this world, all that maybe is even ongoing in your life tonight, know this, it's all part of his plan. Yes, even the bitter experiences, the baffling experiences, the body blows of life, they're all part of His plan. And through it all, He desires that we might have peace. Perfect peace. Peace because greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Remember His words, I have overcome the world. And because He has overcome we will overcome also. Peace because of all that's ongoing and it's going according to plan. For even as he said unto young Timothy, know this, in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. In the last days perilous times shall come. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Peace because of that future prospect, the future prospect for the believer. I will come again and receive you unto myself. The God of all grace after that we have suffered a while will perfect, establish, and strengthen us. Our world may be dark, but praise God tonight the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So tonight we're reminded through all of these things that no plan of Satan will thwart him. No scheme of man will stop him. For as he himself testifies, I am the Lord, I change not. I am the God who remains to be thy life and the length of thy days. 
I will remember all that I have covenanted to do, and your eyes shall behold what I will do as I fulfill all that I have promised to do. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so tonight, believer, behold your God, the God of Israel, the God of the land covenant, the God who knoweth your frame, the God who remembereth that you are but dust, the God who will do all that he has promised to do, the God who will never leave you nor forsake you, the God who will be your guide through all the changing scenes of time, even unto death, the God who has overcome the world, who leads us from victory to victory, the God who never changes, your God, the same yesterday, today, and forever.